Good morning. Let me just do that to make sure people are awake, right? And you are. You're awake. Uh, we are in the book of Acts still. We are in chapter 15 today, and we're not going to go quite through the whole thing, but we will hit most of chapter 15. It's an area called the Jerusalem Council. Um, and if I'm honest, it reminds me of the Jedi Council, and there's a reason for that. I know, we're getting overboard on Star Wars references this year. That's three after never, ever before. Um, There was actually an infamous bootleg copy of Star Wars Episode Three, which why a bootleg of that one exists, I don't know. Uh, But they took Chinese audio and translated it into English subtitles, uh, and some of the results were just hilarious. Uh, One of them was that the Jedi Council was rendered as the Presbyterian Church um, because of elders. and, and so ever since then, every PCA elder has appreciated this because, you know, that means they are Jedi Knights. <clears throat> and uh, so that's, that's part of it, though. Uh, the reality, though, is the Jerusalem Council is a, a theological debate. Uh, and so it's one of those things you hear about and you think, boy, that sounds about as interesting as watching C-SPAN, um, which is not nearly as interesting as watching, like, the BBC when they do Parliament stuff over there. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but the British, like, insult each other back and forth the whole time. Um, it's more interesting. I don't know if it's more effective. So the <clears throat> truth is, though, this, this here that we're looking at today has huge significance. Uh, and, and what we're seeing here is these two massive cultures coming together in, in the gospel, and they're having to figure out what does this look like? How do we, how do we interact with each other uh, in this way? And so what we're seeing is, is how do we find gospel unity in this cultural diversity? Um, so you remember... Most of the first Christians were actually raised in, in the Jewish tradition, and, and they were raised to understand the Old Testament law, and it was deep-seated in, in their, all their understanding. And so uh, one primary aspect uh, of that was that every male uh, was to be circumcised as a way of distinguishing them as the people of God uh, and not the people of the world, to show that they were God's unique people. And, and this raises this question for us, could God have picked a more awkward sign of the covenant Um, for us to deal with? And I think the answer is no. Um, But really, uh, it's God's covenant, right? And he can administer it any way he wants to, and this is the way he chose to administer it. And so we're going to read our text today in in four sections, uh, and we're going to start with just the first five verses of Acts chapter 15. So follow along with me as we read that. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders and, and, and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and by the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order for them to keep the law of Moses. Uh, The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Oh God, this is your word. It is breathed out by you, and it is profitable for us. May we learn what it teaches us, 
May we accept reproof when our lives don't match it, and would you give us joy when it corrects our ways. And may we soak in these 66 books so that we might be trained in righteousness and always pointed to the truly righteous one who is the redeemer of our souls, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the heart of the issue here is how should Gentile, uh, remember that is non-Jewish people, uh, believers, be incorporated into the community, uh, this, this new church community, which God designed, by his design, has grown out of the Jewish community. And so I want you to, to think about this. Uh, how much of the Jewish culture should the Gentiles now take on? And as you're thinking about that, also consider this in terms of today. How much of, of our culture would we expect converts to take on? New converts. And then even flip that over a little bit, because the question is, how much of their own culture must be left behind when someone comes to faith in Christ? In, in many cases, these Gentiles were involved in idol worship. That was their culture. And as part of their, uh, that was part of their just cultural identity. And so how much of that needed to change when they came to trust in Jesus? Uh, it, it helps that, then if we can put this in terms that we can understand, right? Because you and I, it's, it's hard to get our mind back to understand what's going on here. But imagine if tomorrow, not a few Muslims, but masses of Muslims came to faith in, in Jesus Christ, came to believe he was their savior. How much of that, their previous Muslim, Islam culture, Muslim culture would need to stop? You know, when you get down to the specifics, and instead of bowing to Mecca when they pray, could they face towards Jerusalem now? Or uh, is that too tied to their old ways of, of Islam? Could they still fast during Ramadan? Only make it a Christian fast now? Or, or could someone raise Buddhists, still meditate, if now their meditation was on the word of God and not some sense of nirvana? Um, <clears throat> could someone converting from Catholicism to Protestantism still pray the rosary? Or is that the kind of thing you'd ask them to stop? And again, we're talking about massive numbers, not just one or two or a few Gentiles here and there. And we're seeing this that for the first time in the history of the church at this moment, Gentile believers exist in about the same number as Jewish believers. And they've not been raised under the Old Testament law. And so this is a very significant interaction that's starting to happen. So then the first thing we see in this text today is that some men from Judea come down to Antioch and they begin to tell them, right? They uh, took it upon themselves to start teaching something there. Um, and they're saying, this is what's required of you if you're going to really be a Christian, right? And, and so they tell the Gentiles, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. You can imagine, on, on some level, these new Gentile uh, believers, you know, they must have looked like soccer players waiting for a, uh, a free kick in front of the goal to protect the kill kick, right? Um, they didn't want to have this particular surgery. But Paul and Barnabas, you know, come to their defense and they have this debate with the Judeans. And, and when they can't come to any sort of conclusion about this, uh, finally the church sends Paul and Barnabas up to Jerusalem. Uh, and you might wonder, why Jerusalem? Why not just figure it out here? Well, they sent them to Jerusalem because that's where the apostles were. That's where there are other wise elders. That's really, at this point in history, home base for the, for the early church. And so they send them up there to come to some sort of conclusion. And this was a long trip on foot. Um, so you can imagine, you know, as we get frustrated driving three hours to Wichita in an air-conditioned car. 
but here they are being called to actually go to Jerusalem by foot. <clears throat> and it was worth the effort. Uh, and, and we see here in, in Paul what Luther, Luther described Paul, and he said that uh, Paul was strong in faith but soft in love. And, and we see that, his willingness to go to these great lengths, to go find an answer for these Gentiles. Uh, he cared for these new Gentile believers, and so they travel, and they're seeking to find a, a resolution or a solution to this dispute. And when they arrive in Jerusalem, they're welcomed by the church. That's everyone. They're welcomed by the apostles. You know, those are the unique uh, men who God has called to that position. And he's welcomed by the elders who had been appointed even in the church in Jerusalem. And, and I found it interesting there that there are elders in the church there uh, because you kind of read this and expect, well, the apostles will just be the de facto elders. Uh, and yet they've actually appointed as a, a particular office in the church there of elders. Um, Paul and Barnabas then explain how God had brought many Gentiles to faith. They're telling the story. Listen, this is what we experienced. And uh, and then a group from Jerusalem actually objects to this as well. And you notice who that was in verse 5, right? The party of the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees love the law. Uh, the law is their culture. Uh, and, and so you shouldn't be surprised that they bring this into their understanding of the gospel. They're going to bring this, uh, this sense of the law into that. And so they're asking, uh, is, circumcision, is circumcision still necessary to be in the family of God. That's the question that's being asked here. And the Pharisees' opinion is, is very clear in verse 5 when they say it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. But what's the council going to decide, right? How will God bring this to some sort of a conclusion? Uh, and, and we'll look at the next section right here. Let's start in verse 6. We'll read, follow along with your Bibles in front of you. Um, and let's see where this goes. It says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, Therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So now the, the apostles uh, and the elders are debating this issue amongst themselves, which, which means, really, this is not as clear as you and I tend to think it is at this point, Right? Uh, particularly as we understand that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, not the abolisher of the law. And at some point, we see this right here in what we just read, that Peter stands up and he speaks boldly, and he's reminding them that God has already made a choice in regards to this issue. And what was God's choice? Well, he's talking about his interaction with uh, the centurion, Cornelius. Remember we counted up our centurions and partial centurions in here? Um, commander of a hundred men. And, and the centurion in chapter 10 was, was a Gentile. And you remember there, God gave Peter this, this vision uh, that called him to preach the gospel to, to this man who was a Gentile. And he does. Uh, and Cornelius believed the gospel. And, and in verse 8 here, it says that God bore witness, right? Now, to bear false witness, you might recognize that from the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's something that's forbidden of us. It means to lie, to confirm an untruth. 
um, so that the phrase, uh, and so that the phrase is that, uh, the phrase we have here is that God bore witness, right? That's the opposite. This is to confirm something that is true. And it says, God bears witness when he confirms that they truly have faith. And look at verse 8. It says, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. Not only that, but, but he also proves that they are truly in Christ by, by making this uh, the point in verse 9, that our hearts were cleansed by faith, not the keeping of the law, um, not by circumcision. And then he adds, the Gentiles' hearts were cleansed by faith, not by the keeping of the law. Peter is talking uh, to others who were raised in the Jewish faith. He understands that. And, and he reminds them, you know, listen, uh, we've tried to keep the law. Our generations, our history, we've all tried to keep the law and we've all failed. And he compares it to a, a yoke. You, you kind of have an idea what yoke is at this point. It's a piece of wood. Uh, it'd be put on an ox when they, when they were plowing, maybe two ox if they were to plowing with two of them. Uh, and it was typically a, a fairly heavy piece of wood. But if it was too heavy, then the ox couldn't move. It couldn't accomplish what it needed to do. Uh, and that's the reason why, why rabbis at the time, these were Jewish teachers, uh, spoke of submitting to God's law as a yoke. It was something put on you that kept you in order. Um, and it was either too hard to carry or, or too light to carry. And his point here is that we can't carry that yoke. And we've been raised in the law. And we, you know, we've been the people of God. And so how is it right that we're asking these Gentiles now to carry, it, carry something we couldn't even carry? And Peter continues. And in verse 11, he explains this covenant of grace. He says, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So who's saved by the law? No one. And who's saved by circumcision? No one. So then how are the Jews, the chosen people of God, to be saved? By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to this text. How will the Gentiles be saved? By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other name. And so then Peter finishes this statement. Um, and, and so let's read that. Verse, verse 12, he continues on. It says, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, <clears throat> that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So the debating stopped. And they listened to Paul and they listened to Barnabas as they're telling these stories. They're the stories that you and I have been going through these last few weeks, where we've seen them preach the gospel and Gentiles believe and God filled them with the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and then finally this new voice speaks up. It's James. Uh, James is the half-brother of Jesus. Um, James' point is that when Peter just told us how God is redeeming a people for himself from among the Gentiles, 
we ought not be surprised. And we ought not be surprised because God said he would do just that. And God always fulfills his word. Uh, so this quote that you see there, this is a quote from the Old Testament. It's from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. And, and in this, the, the promise in this passage is that God is going to restore Israel. And, and the unexpected aspect of this passage is that it's not only that he's going to restore Israel, but he's also going to restore the nations, the Gentiles, to himself. And, and the Amos passage is very clear. It's not all Gentiles, but those who are called by his name. So they aren't just removing or disagreeing scripture or disregarding scripture. You see this? They didn't just say we want the Gentiles to be accepted, so forget scripture. They are going to scripture to find some conclusion. They're looking at God's word and they're learning that it speaks of God giving faith to the Gentiles. Um, and that's going to be the thing that's going to have to change them, right? James then gives his judgment in verse 19. We should not Trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And by that he means Gentile Christians are not bound by the Jewish ceremonial law. There is no prereq for faith in Jesus. There is no pre-approval system. You know, it's not like a credit card. You know, uh, ah, you'd like to turn from idols and place your faith in Christ. Well, wonderful. Let's pull up your credit store score and see if we can get you pre-approved. There's nothing like that. And why can't circumcision be required? It can't be required because circumcision isn't the gospel. Jesus Christ is the gospel. And so for us, uh, you know, you and I, we, we hear this and we think circumcision, that's, that's no big deal. No one in here is asking that question, right? Um, it isn't on our radar of requirements for believing the gospel today, but, but we do still tend to have new requirements that we add to stuff. You know, it's not always bad things. In fact, it's rarely anything bad. Um, just like circumcision isn't bad. Things like, you know, did you pray the sinner's prayer? Um, no, but my faith is in, in Jesus alone. You know, or, you know, did she pray the sinner's prayer? No, but she's clearly filled with the Holy Spirit. We've, we've seen God do such an amazing work in her life uh, since she's come to believe. You know, the sinner's prayer is not some terrible thing. Uh, it's just not a requirement for salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ is. Uh, and what seems strange then in this whole passage, I think, is this, you know, immediately after concluding that circumcision is not uh, necessary, you think that'll be it, you know, let's sign the letter and send it. But they give this, this list, right, uh, of things, but, but abstain from this. And list, abstain from things polluted by idols. This is the most bizarre sounding list ever. Abstain from sexual morality. Abstain from what has been strangled. Uh, abstain from blood. All right. Um, we're going to come back to that list. It's not as crazy as it sounds at first. Uh, but let's keep reading and see. Verse 22. Follow along. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. So this is the context of the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit 
and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you'll do well. Farewell. So then they were sent off. I'm going to keep reading. So then they were sent off, and they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So everyone appears to agree on the issue uh, at this point. They graft, draft this letter that they're going to send with these two men from the Antioch church uh, and two men from the Jerusalem church to add weight to this letter to make sure you know, this is really what the conclusion is. Uh, and this letter was a judgment uh, on the issue of circumcision. It's not just here's our opinion, do what you want with it. It was an actual judgment. And this letter is really bold. And I don't know if you see that at first, but it makes clear that no one ought to teach the view that circumcision is required because that's an attack against the core of the gospel. And so in this letter, they're showing this, this unwillingness uh, of the church to compromise the gospel in order to appease some segment of the church that just has their, their thing they want done. Um, and so then, you know, we hear the Pharisees, uh, they even make that statement, you know, we hear the Pharisees have come to you and they keep saying things uh, that they're trying to overstep their place of authority. And, and we didn't send them. Just understand, like, I know you're discouraged. We didn't send these people to say this. They did it on their own. Um, verse 28, then, is one of those verses that we can just blow right on past if we're not careful. And what I love about this, I want you to look, I mean, look at this, is it shows us that the Holy Spirit does not merely lead through just miraculous things, right? Miraculous signs. Think about this. Uh, this council of elders and the apostles, they get together and they prayed about the issue, right? Uh, and then they study God's word regarding the issue. And then they debated the issue. So those are the three things going on. And only then do we see in verse 28 right there, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That's the Holy Spirit working through these extremely ordinary means to safeguard the gospel in this moment, to safeguard it from being distorted. And so we, we again see that strange list of, of requirements, right? Uh, verse 28 actually refers to them as requirements. This, this is their act of shepherding of these new believers. Um, of these new, new Gentile believers. And the order of the list, the list is the same, the order's changed a little. Abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Abstain from blood. Abstain from what has been strangled. Abstain from sexual immorality. Um, so why these four requirements? Um, truth is, they're, they're more of a group than, than a list even. Uh, because they all pertain to what was common pagan worship practice. Uh, at the heart, they're asking these, these new believers to abstain from taking part in these cultural idol worship festivals. Uh, each of those things have to do with it. These festivals were, were actually one of the rare times that, that people would get meat at this time. Maybe you understand the temptation at this point, if that's the only time you're going to get good meat. Uh, and they're saying, you know, I, I know you're going to want to take part in these festivals. That's going to be a temptation to you. But don't go back to your old ways of idol worship. It's not worth it. 
Um, and the second thing in that list, the blood, uh, I was asking Travis about this this week. There's a, a large group from Nepal who uh, was in Kansas City. They were refugees from there, and uh, their, their Hindu faith, I don't understand the real detail, but uh, they would roast a goat at celebrations, an actual goat, uh, and they would drink the blood or they'd make something out of the blood, a dish out of it. Uh, however, when many of them you know, came to faith in Christ, they, they kept roasting the goat, and Travis would eat it, I wouldn't eat it. Uh, at these parties, but they stopped drinking the blood, and that was part of their, you know, their new life in Christ. Things need to change, and, and so they stopped doing that. Personally, I wish they had stopped eating the goats. It was not real good. Um, <clears throat> what's been strangled here was, was also uh, in regard to animals, animal, uh, sacrificing animals to idols. Um, you know, although the, the New Testament in many other places forbids sexual immorality, uh, apart from, from worship or idol worship, pagan worship, in this list, it is particular to the temple prostitutes, uh, which were part of the pagan festivals. And so they're speaking to that. Uh, these four things in this list together were very clearly about leaving behind the old way of life because you have a new way of life in, in Christ. It's, it's not primarily about offending Jewish believers either. It's primarily about offending God. Um, that they don't go on worshiping idols in their life. So, to be absolutely clear, this list of four things, it is not a requirement, okay? And I've mentioned that because the thing they're correcting on circumcision, they're saying this is not a requirement. This list is not a requirement to get into the family of God. It is a way to live once you are in the family of God, uh, which should raise a question for us. Are there things in our lives that we should abstain from? Not as a means to get into the family of God, uh, but as a way to live because we are members of God's family. First uh, Thessalonians 1.9 joyfully speaks of the believers in Thessalonica who turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So just, just understand, in this letter, when, we, when they encourage them to abstain from participating in the pagan festivals, it is not legalism. It is shepherding care for their souls. It is, it is uh, you know, it is caring for them. And, and if we're honest, most of us accept too much of worldliness into our lives under some, some false sense that we are resisting legalism, you know. I can do whatever I want because I'm resisting legalism. Um, for the sake of, of thinking through this, though, it, it might be a good idea that, that we even ask ourselves, uh, what are the areas of, of idol worship in our American culture might this council have called us to sustain or abstain from? Um, you know, crazy drunken nights, right? Um, sexual immorality of all sorts, of uh, the all-consuming pursuit of wealth, you know, at all costs. Uh, some idols are actually good things uh, until we elevate them to the position of idols, right? Dream jobs, marriage, children. You can think of all sorts of things that can quickly become idols in your life. Uh, one, of our, uh, one of my favorite songwriters, a guy named Ross King at a college station, gave a, a great perspective on this uh, when he sang in one of his songs. Anything I want with all my heart or anything I can't stop thinking of is, is an idol. as you, you think about that, you know, you start to identify these idols in our own lives. And, and you see the danger for these Gentile believers was that they would just add Jesus to their idols. Just another one on top of the others. Um, we do that. You know, we want to attach Jesus onto our existing values instead of rightly turning from other things to Jesus. Uh, or as Ephesians 4 puts it, when we are in Christ, we, 
We take off the old self and we put on the new self. Um, okay, so this, <clears throat> this letter that they send just comes to this weird, abrupt end. Um, I don't know if they didn't understand social interaction real well. Uh, it's just farewell, and that's the end. Uh, it kind of sounds like young children are on the phone, they're talking to grandma in the middle of a sentence, and then just bye. <laughs> and that's, that's it. I, I don't know why it ends so abruptly. Um, so the only thing at this point left to do then is to read this letter to the Gentiles and, and let's see how they respond. And so they do. They travel back. They gather everyone together and, and, and look at how it's received by the Gentiles. Verse 31. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. Their rejoicing is a clear sign that they did not find those four things they've been asked to abstain from as a heavy yoke, Right? Uh, you can imagine that these, these new Gentile believers were incredibly discouraged after the men from Judea came down and, and gave them this, this, you know, you must be circumcised. How they might have been feeling like second-rate citizens in the kingdom of God, feeling, you know, dirty, maybe even questioning their salvation because there's some requirement we haven't met. So, of course, of course, it's going to be encouraging to hear the, from the apostles and from the elders at Jerusalem that you're doing great. You know, the, the faith that God has given you is real. Your sin is forgiven in Christ. You can imagine the encouragement that might be. And then Judas and Silas, they stay for a while, and they continue to encourage and strengthen the Christians in Antioch. And then off they go, and Paul and Barnabas, they remain there preaching and teaching for an extended period of time. Um, later, Paul's going to write a letter to the Gentile churches in Galatia, and it's going to deal with this issue more extensively. Uh, you can read it. It's in your Bibles. It's called the book of Galatians. Uh, and his overarching point there, like here, is that you're either trusting and you're keeping of the law or you're trusting in Jesus and the law won't save you, so trust in Jesus. So now, here we are, right? 2,000 years later. Is it safe to say this was a successful letter? Um, very successful. There is no conflict today about whether you must be circumcised or not to truly be a Christian. I have no idea who here is and who isn't, and I would like it to stay that way. <laughs> but the application of this goes far beyond circumcision. Um, you do not need to become a Jew to follow uh, or follow Jewish culture to become a Christian. You do not need to be a Republican or a Democrat before turning to Christ. Just doing your best is also not enough. What you and everyone else on the planet needs is grace, and that means that you need Jesus. You don't need to do anything. There's no fasting schedule for you to keep. There's no magic prayer to be said. And if we're honest, we don't like that. I don't like that. Uh, you know, we want steps. We want to reach some confirmation. But there are no steps to the gospel, just faith in Jesus. Yes, there is fruit that grows from the seed of faith planted in your core. But in regards to the gospel, simply understand there are no steps, just resting in Jesus Christ. I want to close with just a, a quick story. The other day, uh, our family came home from the store, um, and there's bags, you know, from things we bought. And everyone grabbed a bag to carry in, everyone but our, our six-year-old Berkeley. Um, she had nothing. And, and out of her mouth comes these words, uh, almost proudly, I am a non-contributing zero. <laughs> our other children use this phrase sometimes, too, when they're doing nothing. 
they know the phrase uh, because of this funny Louis C.K. clip uh, that Laura and I watched some years ago, and, and it's worked its way into our family's vocabulary. Um, and it's worked our way into our vocabulary because, one, it's funny, um, and two, we really wish to raise children who are contributors, contributors to their community and contributors to their church and to their family and just society in general. Uh, but equally, we want them to know, and, and I... And I want you to know, and, and I need to know this over and over and over again, that we do not contribute to our salvation. You see, when it comes to the forgiveness of our sin, our, our right standing before God, we are all non-contributing zeros. We simply receive by grace through faith and rest in our Savior. And so, brothers and sisters, uh, <clears throat> In the gospel, we are non-contributing zeros. Praise be to God. Let's pray. God, would you simplify our understanding of your gospel? Would you show us that just like those in this first century church, we are saved through the faith of the Lord Jesus, and that this is also true for people who might not be like us? God, would you teach us to be bold and unwavering in regards to the truth of the gospel? And would you also show us where we have made it unnecessarily difficult for unbelievers to turn to God? We thank you for your word today, which is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.